You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. Well, thank you very much. It is uh, my pleasure to be in the house today. I so appreciate uh, Mercy Culture and, and the church and the staff. Uh, so many incredible people. And as we get going, I wanna start with a Bible verse. Uh, I think will probably be familiar with us to some extent. Uh, let me click on this to make sure. It's jumping a little bit. Okay, I'm gonna do it this way. Uh, I'm gonna start with a Bible verse. Hopefully we will recognize Matthew 14, excuse me, John 14, six, where Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's worth noting in those two sentences. The second sentence, Jesus makes a claim of exclusivity. He's the only way to the Father. This is a big deal because we live in a world and a culture where there are even Christians inside of churches that are coming to believe Right, that there's lots of roads to Jesus, lots of roads to the Father. Well, no, I mean, there might be different ways to get to Jesus, but there's only one way to the Father, right? Jesus said he's the only way to the Father. That's exclusivity. You only get saved through Jesus. Well, then what's also worth noting in that first sentence, he said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. This notion is one of the most significant for us given the culture we live in because we have never seen truth more under attack than what we're seeing right now, right? When you have a culture that can't even identify the difference between a boy and a girl, we, we had trouble with truth, right? Like this, this should not be confusing. And yet what we see is in this culture we live in, it, there's a, a promotion of what is known as subjective truth. That, that it's up to the individual to decide what's right and wrong, right? Like that's your truth, but this is my truth. And the reality is there is no your truth and my truth. There is the truth and we can have some opinions. Big picture of the reason why this matters is Jesus told the disciples in John 8, 32, he said that you would know the truth and the truth shall make you free, right? The truth sets us free. You cannot be set free from truth you don't know or don't believe in. You, you have to know the truth. And so when a culture is saying, well, truth is up to the individual, you can know this is one of the big lies and attacks from Satan because he wants to keep people in bondage. He doesn't want them to find freedom. He doesn't want them to know the truth. And, and this is why as Christians, we have to be much more cognizant of truth and become much more investing, uh, intentional and investing in the promotion of truth. With that being said, as, as was mentioned, I am the president of Wall Builders. We do a lot with American history. And to clarify, the name Wall Builders we took from the Bible book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the guy who saw the walls of Jerusalem had been torn down. He called people to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and so that's where we took the name Wall Builders, Nehemiah 2.17. He said, come, let us rebuild the walls that we may no longer be a reproach to the people. So we want to be the wall builders restoring what God had initially done when the devil tried to attack. The reason I feel like it, it makes a difference, I tell you that now, is because uh, ever since President Trump was elected, uh, if we're wall builders, people think like we're build the wall. That's not who we are, right? I mean, I'm not against the wall, but like that's, that's not who we are. Uh, we are promoting a lot more of the Christian heritage of the nation, uh, the, the idea that Christians need to be part of the solution, getting involved as we see issues in culture. But the reason we spend so much time with history, we have what's considered the largest private collection of original documents from American history, uh, from the founding era specifically. We have about 120,000 items in the collection, and it includes things. We have actually writings, letters, journals from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Madison, Hamilton, anybody you can name, we have some of their writings. We have stuff from the pilgrims that came across on the Mayflower. I mean, just amazing stuff. But the reason that we have collected it 
is because we want to be pursuers of truth. And what we've discovered is the more we read original documents, the more we recognize the inaccuracies that are being told today, right? So much of the narrative and culture today, it's not historically accurate. It reminds me a lot. There was a book uh, in 1950 by a guy named George Orwell. It's called 1984. And if you don't know it, uh, oddly, one of the most prophetic books for our culture today, uh, where he talked about a dystopian state and the government coming in and changing language. Anyway, all kinds of stuff. But in it, one of the things he identified, he said, who controls the past controls the future? Who controls the present controls the past. Now, let me start with the second thought, is whoever controls the present controls the past. What we know is the people that are in charge of the educational institutions today, they are controlling the narrative that the rising generation is learning about America and about the world. Now, why does that even matter? Because what George Orwell pointed out so brilliantly is whoever controls the past controls the future. The way you perceive The past of America determines the direction we are going in the future. For example, we have a generation now that is learning not just that America was built and rooted in racism, but that the Constitution is evil, right? That that the Constitution is racist. Now, why does that even matter? Because the leading idea for the rising generation is that we should throw off the Constitution and become socialists, okay? Socialism is 75% of college students have a favorable view of socialism according to the most recent findings, Okay, now that that is mind boggling for anyone who's paid any attention to socialism and the fruit it's produced over the last 100 years. 20th century alone, socialism is responsible for more than 100 million deaths and we have a rising generation saying, no, socialism is great, why? Because the people that were controlling the educational system have been lying about things historically and it's given us a belief that we should do something fundamentally different without recognizing the reality of who we are and where we've come from. And this is where I wanna point out, as, as you look big picture at what George Orwell did and talked about, it was a dystopian state where people were being lied to and they were buying the lie because they didn't recognize it was a lie. Well, this is something as a Christian, we probably should pay a little bit more attention to because the Bible tells us that Satan is the father of all lies right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's come that we may have life and have it more abundantly. And yet we live in a time when back in 1980, there was a man uh, named Howard Zinn who wrote a people's history of the United States. And this is one of the worst history books that's ever been written. Uh, Historians far and wide have gone through and talked about how inaccurate he was. But the reason I bring this up is because this history book that was done in the 1980s has become the foundation for public schools today. And What he did is he said, everyone that you think used to be a hero, they actually were really bad and evil people. And he starts with Christopher Columbus and goes all the way through the founding fathers and all these people are really, really bad and evil. Well, what he did is the notion of deconstructionism. Deconstructionism is a Marxist idea that you have to tear down what is there so you can build something different in its place. And this is really what came forward. Now, what it's really led to, that right now there are so many people that think America is so, so bad and they have no perspective whatsoever. And, and I'm saying this with understanding and context. America has a lot of issues, okay, completely. But let me, let me give a little context for you. You know who else has a lot of issues? Every nation in the world. Do you know why? Because there's people in every nation in the world. And people outside of a regenerated heart through Jesus Christ are only going to do evil, sinful things, right? So what America needs, what the world needs is some more Jesus, right? Like this is the reality, but 
What our kids are learning is that America is the uniquely evil one, right? All other nations are great. America's really bad. And again, I'm not trying to downplay the reality. America's done some pretty sinful things, but I want to point out that we know so little about American American history that we are believing things that are just historically not true. And one of the things that I actually enjoy every summer on 4th of July, there's a lot of different organizations that they will send people out to do interviews, They right, man on the street interviews. And I grew up, maybe some of you might remember back, Jay Leno used to do jaywalking. He'd go out on the street and interview people and it was really embarrassing because he would ask them easy questions they didn't know. Uh, well, then there was Will Witt from Prager University, uh, Jesse uh, Waters from Waters World. A lot of people have done this. Every 4th of July, there's a lot of these fun interviews. I want to show you guys an interview. Uh, there, there was a guy walking on the street uh, out in California, just asking people some basic questions about America. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this to lay the context for our conversation today. As we dive into ultimately a pursuit of truth, American history, and then what role should Christians play in this process, I just want us to understand where we're starting from. So I'm going to play this video. You guys check this video out, kind of what people country don't know about America. Broke away from England to start their own country in the late 1700s. I have no idea, man. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> what are we celebrating on the 4th of July? Our independence. A little more specific. It's the day that we overtook the South. And it's the day that, um, it's our independence. It's, that's why we have the From the South. From the South, exactly. So it was the victory of the Civil War? Yes. Fourth of July? Yes. The Declaration of Independence was signed by who? I don't know. Just name one person. Um... Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Not? What year was that declaration? Was it 1964? <laughs> 84? 1984. 84? Oh, I don't know. No. We're 1864? 1864. I don't know. This country, no wonder this country's in trouble. Please know all of those answers were incorrect. Okay? Fourth of July was not about the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln didn't sign the Declaration, and the Declaration was not done in 1984. Oh my gosh, right? Obviously, we have some people who don't know very much about American history, but this is the reality, is that most people do not know much of the story. And yet, again, it's crazy to me that people are so opinionated about something that they know so little about. But to walk you through, right, America, July 4th, 1776, the declaration is announced, right, or presented, all this unfolds. King George III is king of England, we separate. But here's what's crazy, is as you look at the Declaration of Independence, this is one of the most noted documents in American history. It used to be, some of us that are a little older, we remember going to school, we actually would read and memorize portions of the Declaration. The Declaration is actually being removed from public school curriculum today because people are saying, nope, it's a really bad document, blah, blah, whatever. Okay, so let me, let me just start assuming that we probably collectively might not know that much about the Declaration. Uh, and so if you don't understand, or maybe, maybe you're a parent or grandparent, and you're like, I wanna make sure my kids get this. If you have to explain the Declaration to somebody, this I think is the best explanation of the Declaration of Independence, and it's that the Declaration of Independence was the greatest breakup letter ever written. Where we were like, hey, just heads up, it's not working out anymore. 
Uh, we're gonna do our own thing. Uh, and, and to clarify, uh, it's not us, it's all you. Here's all your problems, right? Like this is what the declaration was. 27 grievances, the king is the issue. And if you look at the declaration, Thomas Jefferson was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. And Jefferson was 33 years old. And I don't know how well you remember being a kid. I remember vividly being a kid. And my parents were in their 30s. And I was like, they're so old, right? And then for some of us now that have, you know, made it into past our 30s, I'm in my 40s now. And I look back going, first of all, 33 is not very old, right? Secondly, you are not inherently brilliant as a 33-year-old, right? Like, it's not 33 like, I have all wisdom. No, that's not how that works. So for Jefferson to articulate the political philosophy of the nation in so concise and brilliant a manner is super impressive. And the second paragraph is the phrase that probably most of us remember reading or memorizing at some point. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are stood among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. That's the phrase we use to memorize from the Declaration. And it's interesting that when the Founding Fathers came together, they disagreed about a lot. They argued a long time. But when they wrote the Declaration, the phrase that they actually start with on this section is we hold these truths to be self-evident. See, in the midst of disagreements, the common ground they found was truth. Now, the reason this becomes really important for us in this conversation is, again, in a culture that is saying truth is subjective, that, that is saying like boys and girls, that's, that's subjectivity, instead of recognizing, no, that's, that's an absolute fact, right? That's a scientific fact. There's chromosomes. There's like all kinds of stuff we can get into with biology. This, this isn't complicated, but the point is, if there is no truth, what can we unify around? This is why... The biggest cultural battle we will see is what we saw from the very beginning of Genesis, right? What was the, the devil's first strategy and tactic? It was to get Adam and Eve to question truth. Question, did, did God really say that? This is why the founding father said, okay, we disagree about a lot. This is true. Well, what were the things they thought were truth? And let's point out, they didn't just say that we hold these truths. They said we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident means like, this is obvious. All of us realize like, these are obvious truths. What are the obvious truths? They said that we're created equal. That, that we have rights that come from God and that government exists to protect and secure those rights. Here's what's crazy. One of the reasons that people are saying, academics, educators are saying today that we shouldn't study the Declaration of Independence or that kids shouldn't read it in school anymore is because it's racist. How is it racist? The argument goes that when the founding father said that we were all created equal, that they were all white and most of them had slaves, so they only meant that white people were equal, therefore this is racist. Okay, it's easy for someone to say something. What matters is what is true. So if someone is going to make a claim, a question we ought to ask is, well, how do we know? And ultimately, if I'm asking that, what I wanna know is, what, what, what proof do you have to support your position, right? Like, what, what, what source can you point to? Because what I would point out is you can go back to the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, and in the original draft, it's four pages. The first page is where Jefferson lays out political philosophy. Second page, he starts going bullet points down, all the grievances. Third page, grievances. Fourth page, he wraps up the political philosophy saying, we're out. Third page, the last grievance of the declaration is the largest grievance, and it is nearly half of the page. What grievance did Jefferson think was so important that it took nearly half of the page? 
It was a grievance against the slave trade and against slavery, okay? Now, I'm telling you this. I also wanna point out, this is easy to find online. You can do a search for original draft of the declaration and pull it up. And I'm telling you this, everything I'm telling you this morning, I can tell you exactly where it came from. And I would highly encourage you to go look it up and read it because I don't want you to take my word for this, right? As much as I want to be a trustworthy person, I want to encourage you to be seekers of truth more than just trusting people, okay? The reason our nation is in as much trouble as we are in is because we've trusted the wrong people for way too long, right? And I mean, like genuinely, like there are shocking things to me. Like when COVID happens, I don't even understand how all that happened, right? When at first they're like, hey guys, don't wear masks, they don't work. I mean, kidding, right? Two weeks later, everybody get a mask. Like that seems like a pretty big switch. And then... I mean, here's the deal. I'm not often political in churches because the nature of what I do, but I hear in this church I'm allowed to be, so here we go, right? I'm from the country, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I was smart enough to know that when I put on my mask and I could still smell the cows, right, like, maybe this mask isn't quite as effective as they say it's gonna be, right? I mean, do we remember this process? Like when they're like, hey, if you get the vaccine, which by the way, totally safe because we've done no long-term testing to verify, but it's totally safe. If you get the vaccine, you can't get COVID. I mean, okay, well, you can get COVID, but you won't die. Okay, well, then you might die, but you're not as likely. Every month it changed. And yet we are still trusting the same people as they're changing their mind. Like, what is happening? This is the problem. We are a culture that we have been trained to do what we're told without asking questions, okay? Now, one of the things I can tell you with confidence is truth is not insecure. Truth does not mind being questioned, which, how do we connect those dots? God doesn't mind being questioned because God's not insecure, right? You're like, God, I don't understand. He's like, it's cool. Like, you process, I'll take time. I'm not worried. God's not insecure, truth is not insecure. It is only lies that have to prevent the presentation of truth, right? Lies don't wanna be questioned. Don't question the science. The nature of science is to question the science. Right, like that is a totally unscientific position. Just trust the science. No. The reason I'm pointing this out is because the only way culture can be misled is because they believe a lie. But the reason they believe a lie is because they don't pursue truth. And I'm gonna tell you some things this morning that are gonna be countercultural to what you've heard. And, and I understand they are. But with confidence, I can say, don't take my word for it. Go look it up because I know what you will find when you look it up. Because I've looked it up and I've studied the documents. This is the original draft, the largest grievance on page three. Okay, let me walk you through what Jefferson wrote in this. He said, he has waged cruel war, he meaning the king. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never fitted them, captivating and carrying them into slavery or in another hemisphere to incur miserable death and their transportation thither. Let me pause. Just in case we're not tracking, clearly we're talking about the slave trade, 
right? He's taking people from one place, putting them on a boat, taking them to a new place. They might die on the way or they get sold in the new place. Like this, this is what he's starting with. Well, then he picks up and says, this piratical warfare, what is piratical warfare? That's pirates, right? That's like the war of pirates. The opprobrium of infidel powers, the word infidel is underlined in the original draft. What are infidels? Infidels are non-believers. In fact, the Bible calls non-believers infidels in the King James Bible. Well, who were, who were the non-Christian pirates? They were the Barbary pirates of North Africa. They were the Muslim pirates of North Africa who actually began the African slave trade, okay? Jefferson said that, right, the king is doing what these Muslim pirates are doing, and then he gets even further. He says it's the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. The word Christian not only is underlined, it is the first word in the entire original draft of the declaration that's not in cursive. It was printed and underlined. He's drawing attention saying, this Christian king is doing what the Muslim pirates are doing, and he's claiming to be a Christian. But then he goes further. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. The word men was printed and fully capitalized. Capital M-E-N. Why does that matter? Because we're talking about the slave trade. We're talking about slavery. And Jefferson has already written in the second paragraph, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. To clarify, he said that those people that are being enslaved are men. There's no confusion in the original draft, right? These are men, and it goes even further, because this is the grievance against the king. He goes further and says that he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt. What does it mean to suppress a legislative attempt? That is, for example, if in Texas, a state legislature passes a law and the governor's like, no, nope, I don't want that, and the governor vetoes it. That is suppressing a legislative attempt. In the early days of the 13 colonies, we had colonies actually passing laws against the slave trade and against slavery, and the king kept vetoing those laws. Now, as I say this, when people look at the founding fathers, like generally we don't hear about the founding fathers, any of them being anti-slavery, but let me give you an easy example. Benjamin Franklin is one of the noted founding fathers. Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter in 1773 to the Reverend Dean Woodward, and he was talking about the anti-slavery sentiments growing in America at that point. Here's part of what he wrote to the Reverend Dean Woodward. He said, a disposition to abolish slavery prevails in North America that many of Pennsylvanians have set their slaves at liberty and that even the Virginia Assembly, and I'm gonna pause because this is my favorite part of the letter. When Franklin's like, even Virginia's kind of getting on board, right? That's really funny to me that he's knocking a Southern state, but he's like, even Virginia Assembly have petitioned the king for permission to make a law for preventing the importation of more into that colony. So he said, in Pennsylvania, we're already setting our slaves free. Like, we're done with slavery. Virginia is trying to stop the slave trade, but then he goes on in this letter. He says, this request, however, will probably not be granted as their former laws of that kind have always been repealed. Now, if we're saying former laws, that means this is not the first time they've tried it and have always been repealed, the king's always struck it down. Most people have no idea that any of the colonies, any of the founding fathers were coming out against slavery or the slave trade, but this is where, again, let me back you up. There were 56 guys that signed the declaration. If I asked for you to name five or 10 of them, I'm gonna take some odds that most of us would not be able to name five or 10 people in that picture. How do we know who they were and what they believed or what they did? And we don't even know who they are, right? This is the point is that we don't know, but let me, let me just go back to Benjamin Franklin for a second. Benjamin Franklin's an easy example. Benjamin Franklin, no historian considers him a racist, but Franklin actually owned slaves at one point in his life. Why does no historian consider him racist? Because not only did Benjamin Franklin free his slaves before the declaration, 
When you go 11 years later to the Constitutional Convention, Franklin is there, and at that time, Franklin was actually the president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society trying to end slavery, not just in Pennsylvania, but in all the 13 colonies. Franklin went from having slaves, freeing slaves, stopping, trying to end slavery in America. This is the position the majority of founding fathers ended up taking in their lifetime, and yet today, most people have never heard of these individuals, their stories, their journey, but the reason, again, this matters is because if we back up to the original draft, when they said that all men are created, or even the final draft, that all men are created equal, they were not just talking about white people, okay? But let me also point out, when they said that these truths are self-evident, that's something that I think most of us in the room would say, well, yeah, like we, we think it's, it's self-evident that we're all created equal. I'm gonna tell you, I disagree with this sentiment. I don't think it's a self-evident truth. Why? Because even though it might be self-evident to most Americans, do you know in India, they still have a class system? In India, they believe in reincarnation by and large. And if you're born in one class, you, you can't change that status, go somewhere else. If you look at any major Muslim nation in the Middle East or Africa, do you know that they don't believe in equality between men and women, much less between Islam and another faith? Equality is not a normal thought around the world. The idea that we have God-given rights, do you think that's self-evident? Because I don't think Putin believes in God-given rights. I don't think China does. I don't think North Korea does. In fact, I'm not sure many of our elected congressmen or leaders in Washington believe in God-given rights, right? I mean, do we really think this is self-evident? And what I would point out is that even when the founding fathers wrote that these truths were self-evident, the king did not believe these, right? So like, who do you think these truths are self-evident to? And I would go further and say, these truths are only self-evident to people who know what the Bible says. Why? Because if you know what the Bible says, where do we get the idea that we were all created equal? Because Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God made them in his image, male and female, he created them. Okay, let me go further. If you read in Genesis, it never tells us what shape, size, or color Adam and Eve were. Do you know why? Because that doesn't matter. We live in a Marxist culture right now that is saying the group you're a part of is the most important thing about your life. That is one of the most unbiblical statements there is. Read your Bible. Because the Bible says there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. There is no male, there is no female, there's no sister and slave or free for we are all one in Christ. The idea... The idea that we are created equal is a biblical idea. And anytime you see something or someone promoting the notion that we do not have equal value, you can know that's not from God. Because that's not what the Bible says. Well, let's go further. Where do we get the idea that we have God-given rights? Yeah, stay in Genesis. Because in the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve the freedom of choice, which is really the freedom of religion because they could choose him or not choose him. God gave them the freedom of speech. You start thinking about our inalienable rights. What freedoms do we have given by our creator? All of our freedoms were given by God. All of our inalienable rights were given by God. And it starts in Genesis and it starts laying this out. Well, this is where this idea comes from, that we have inalienable rights from God. Or why do we believe that government exists to protect our God-given rights? Because in Genesis 9, after Noah lands the ark on Mount Ararat, he gets off. The very first civil ordinance God gave recorded in scripture was to Noah that if man sheds blood, by a man his blood will be shed. What does that mean? It means if somebody comes along murdering other people, that a group of people, the leaders, the government, was going to take that murderer and they were going to get rid of that guy. Why? Because the role of government was to protect the rights of the individual, the first of those being the right to life. 
So that's why murderers didn't get to keep murdering because government's gonna protect the right to life. This is where these ideas came from and this is what the founding fathers used to know. Now, as I say the founding fathers used to know that, I can point to many, many examples to illustrate this, but let me just go to a, a professor from Cornell University. Uh, his name was Clinton Rossiter. Back in the 1940s and 50s, he was at Cornell. He wrote a book called The Seed Time of the Republic. And in this book, he identified that there were six main people that came up with all of the ideas that led to American independence, that led to America becoming a nation. He said those six people were Benjamin Franklin, Richard Bland, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, the Reverend Roger Williams, the Reverend John Wise, the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. I would bet most of us could not tell who those people were, except maybe Franklin. We might have known of Franklin. But, but let me just draw your attention to something else. He said, these are the six most influential people that led to America becoming a nation. Notice four of those were pastors. The most influential people, like where did the founding fathers get the idea that there was a God and we have rights that came from God? Like that's what they learned from their pastors because the pastors were the most influential voices at that time. Well, to go a little further to give you an example of this, one of those pastors was the Reverend John Wise. The Reverend John Wise was a pastor from Ipswich, Massachusetts. He pastored in the late 1600s, the early 1700s. In 1717, there was a volume of sermons that came out from him. And in that volume of sermons, the Reverend John Wise identified in those sermons that taxation without representation was tyranny. He said that God's preferred form of government was to consider the governed. And then in another sermon, he taught that all men are created equal and they have certain inalienable rights given to them by their creator. All of those phrases appear verbatim in the Declaration of Independence, okay? The reason that now we might think logically and say, well, how did, how did sermons from 1717 make it into the Declaration of 1776? Because they were reprinted in 1772 by the Sons of Liberty. The Sons of Liberty were the early group that were trying to stir up the Americans, and they said, let's reprint those sermons, let's send them to all the colonies. Well, they went to all the colonies, but also all of the founding fathers had read and studied John Wise. When they get back together in 1776 to do the Declaration, all of them knew who John Wise was and had read the sermons. So it's not surprising that when they start coming up with the wording for the Declaration, that literally they're using the wording from the sermons they have read over the last four years in their life. And, and this is something historians used to identify. B.F. Morris in 1864, he said some of the most glittering, hmm, I'm waiting, oh, nope. Uh, some of the most glittering sentences in the Immortal Declaration of Independence are almost literal quotations from this essay of John Wise. It was used as a political textbook in the great struggle for freedom. All I wanna highlight with this is that these are historians in previous generations that this used to be such obvious and evident information. They're like, well, yeah, I mean, we, we know where the thoughts of the Declaration came from. It came from John Wise. Even if you go to the 150th anniversary of the Declaration, uh, Calvin Coolidge was president. He went to Independence Hall, which is where they did the Declaration. He gave a very famous speech. You actually can find his speech and read it online. But in that speech, he talked about John Wise. Here's what he said. The thoughts of the Declaration can very largely be traced back to what John Wise was writing. Here was a doctrine of equality of popular sovereignty and inalienable rights asserted by Wise. Where did those ideas come from? Even presidents, like how obvious did this have to be that even presidents were like, oh yeah, this is John Wise. This was obvious information and today we know so little that we don't recognize that. And part of us knowing so little, if we take one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty, one of the, the noted founding fathers, Sam Adams, I have the opportunity to speak at a lot of high schools and universities uh, throughout the year. And when I talk to students and say, what do you know about Sam Adams? <laughs> There's only one thing college kids know about Sam Adams, right? Like he's the beer guy, which is a really sad legacy for him. 
because he's way more than a beer guy. He was literally known as the father of the American Revolution. He was one of the voices of liberty leading the charge along the way. But what's also kind of cool is not only was he a leader of the Sons of Liberty, because we often think of like the Boston Tea Party, that's the Sons of Liberty. Before that even happened, the Sons of Liberty came up with an idea called the Committees of Correspondence. And their idea was, we need to get everybody on the same page. And so they said, we're gonna write a letter and, and we're gonna circulate it to the 13 colonies. So they called them circulars. We're gonna circulate it to the colonies so everybody sees the same letter, we all get on the same page. This was their early version of like a mass group text, the group me, right? Like we're all gonna see the same thing. This was their idea. He wrote the very first committee of correspondence. It had three parts. And it was the rights of the citizens as men, the rights of the citizens as Christians, and the rights of the citizens as British subjects. Well, the second part was the rights of the colonists as Christians. Now, he's trying to get everybody to join the movement. And his second point is, as a Christian, you should do this. What does that even mean? Well, let me read you the opening line from his second section. Here's what he said. The rights of the colonists as Christians may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and the head of the Christian church, which would be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. He said, if you want to understand what we're thinking on this, you should read your Bible and study Jesus because that's what we're thinking. Okay. Are we suggesting that the founding fathers were promoting people to actually study Jesus and read the Bible? Like that seems like a pretty bold claim to make. That's... And not just what I'm suggesting, I will go even further. Because when you start looking into the founding father's writings, if we take a founding father, a noted founding father like John Adams, for example. John Adams wrote often about his faith. Here's one of the things he wrote. John Adams says, I have examined all religions and the result is that the Bible is the best book in the world. Okay? Not only do I agree with that, most Christians don't know what they believe or why they believe it. Much less do we know what other religions believe. He says, I've examined them all. And there's nothing like the Bible, which if you don't know, you should have great confidence as a Christian because there is no book more reliable than the Bible, okay? Any literary test you wanna give to any book, nothing passes with a higher rate than the Bible. It's the most reliable, the best, because one of the arguments is, right, but it was translated by men and over all these years. Nope, throw that out the window. Go study the Dead Sea Scrolls. Go look at the book of Isaiah. Go see what's there, right? And again, I'm telling you with confidence, don't take my word, go look this up. The Bible is reliable, but he doesn't stop there. He didn't just say the Bible's a really good book. He went on. And he said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate the conduct by the precepts they're exhibited. So imagine, if you will, there's a place and all they do is read and follow the Bible. What would it be like if there's a place that just followed, read, obeyed what the Bible said? Here's what he thought it would be. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? Right? Man, how great would it be if they just followed? Well, what I can tell you is if Chicago would just follow the Ten Commandments, right? It would be way better in Chicago. This was his premise. If we would just follow the Bible, well, his son said something quite interesting as well. John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, went on to become the sixth president of the United States of America. And John Quincy Adams, as a child, this was his perspective. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it is not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. Understand that perspective. How do you have to grow up, right? 
When it's like, man, it's not impressive to know the Bible. Everybody knows the Bible. But if you don't know the Bible, that's embarrassing. It is the opposite in modern America. Because if you don't know the Bible, you fit in with every other American. If you know the Bible, think, think about why do we respect some of the pastors and leaders that we follow? Why do we respect them so much? It's because of how well they understand and know the Bible, right? It used to be that made them average, not special, right? And, and, and to give you a little more context, if I were to ask any adult in the room, any educated person in the room, if I said, what's two plus two? Okay, it's not impressive that someone knows it's four, but it would be embarrassing for an educated person not to know what should be obvious. That was their perspective about the Bible, which let me go ahead and challenge you Christians, right? The majority of Christians have never even read the Bible cover to cover, okay? Now, with some grace and mercy, let me challenge you. As a Christian, we say we base our life on the Bible. For you never to have read the book you say you base your life on, right? Like if you've only been saved a couple years, I'm gonna give you a pass, right? But like for some of us, We've been saved a long time and we've never taken the time to read and study the Bible. How do you know what God's calling you to do if you don't know what God's word says, right? How can you know the life God wants you to live if you don't know what the Bible says? We need to start taking a little more time and intentionality of being students of the word. If you read 3.2 chapters a day, you can go through the entire Bible in a year. And by the way, if you've never read the Bible, let me challenge you, right? By Christmas next year, read your Bible. Okay, if you've read the Bible before, you know what you should do? Read it again, right? Because what you also can know is God is so big, you can read the same chapter, the same book, the same verse and get new revelation because of how big God is, right? As Christians, we need to be students of the word. Well, where does John Quincy Adams learn this idea it's clearly the way he grew up, right? Under his mother and father, John and Abigail Adams, they were some of the more noted leaders in early America. In fact, if, if, if you are not familiar with them, uh, they would be really fun for many of you to know. And specifically, if you are, maybe it's more lady-oriented in this thought. If you are a Hallmark movie person, you should read their letters. There are 1,100 letters between them back and forth. And, and John Adams, just to give you an example, there's a letter where he says, Abigail, I, I'm afraid I'm suffocating because it's been nearly a week since I've seen you. And you are the air that I breathe. You are my sunrise in the morning, my sunset in the evening, right? And I'm reading this like, bro, we're good, right? Like, I get it, you love her. I'm a little more on like the John Wick of the spectrum, right? So like the Hallmark movie is not my scene, but if you like Hallmark movies, you should read their letters. Well, during the revolution, John Adams is gone a lot. Uh, there's times he's gone for more than a year. And because of that, Abigail Adams at times is raising the family by herself, like a single mom. She's taking care of not just the kids and, and the property, but they have a farm, they have a business. So she's doing everything. And the church where they attended is still in existence today. Outside the church, there was a monument, a statue that was erected. And it's Abigail Adams with John Quincy Adams. And it shows her leading in the church because what was very well known is they were always going to go to church. It's, it's who they were, it's what they did. And what's also really fun is if you back up and look at John Quincy Adams' early life, this is one of his early pictures. And I really like showing this because it makes us feel better about our yearbook pictures. Um, this, is, this is him as a child. Well, he grew up during the revolution. As the revolution unfolds, right? You have the shot heard around the world and then you have Concord and then the, 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 they march back to Boston, the British do. And then there's the Battle of Bunker Hill. At the Battle of Bunker Hill, John Quincy Adams, eight years old, is with his mom and they actually watch as their friend Joseph Warren, Dr. Joseph Warren, gets bayoneted to death by the British. And so he watches it like this is, this is a very real thing and, and, and you would have to grow up fast 
right? If you're watching and you're dealing with this, well, his dad came home one day and his dad got a musket down, gave him a musket, and he's eight years old. His dad tells him, you need to start training. The Massachusetts Minutemen used to practice in front of John Adams' home. So John Adams gives his eight-year-old son this gun and says, you need to go practice with the Minutemen. And John Quincy Adams, eight years old, takes the gun and goes start doing musket drills. Now, depending on where you're from, this might not be as relatable. As a country boy, oh my gosh. As an eight-year-old, I had a single-shot bolt-action 22 rifle. And if my dad would have been like, hey, son, go get your 22. In a few minutes, we got some Navy SEALs. Forest Recon Marines, Green Berets are coming. You're going to train. I'm like, Dad, high five. This is amazing. We're like, this is the greatest moment ever. You're training with the military guys. It's awesome. Well, this is the way he grew up. When he was 10 years old, he went with his dad on one of these diplomatic missions over to Paris. And what's really fun, there's a letter from his mom where she's writing John Quincy Adams. She says, I I miss you so much. I haven't heard from you. I I don't even know if you're still alive. I hope you're okay. But then she reminds him, in France, they have a different value system than we do. And I want to remind you that you you need to live the right way, make the right decisions, be godly while you're there. Let me show you part of her letter, what she wrote to her son. Adhere to those religious sentiments and principles which were early instilled into your mind. And remember, you are accountable to your maker for all your words and actions. Okay? Now, some of you remember growing up when we would go out during the day and when it's dark, we had to be back home right? Like I remember growing up playing with kids in the neighborhood. Mom and dad didn't know where I was and it was fine. But I remember sometimes staying with my grandmother and I'd want to go play with my friends. She's like, all right, go have fun. But then her finger came out. She said, but God's watching you, (laughs) right? And you're like, yes, ma'am, I know. I'll be good, right? This is literally what Abigail Adams says, right? She's like, hey, you're accountable for everything you do because God's always watching. Well, then it gets even better She says, dear as you are to me, I'd much rather you should find your grave in the ocean or an untimely death crop you in your infant years rather than see you in a moral, wicked, or graceless child. I hope you drown in the ocean, love, mom. (laughs) Right? Like, this this is kind of crazy, and yet it's also awesome. Proverbs 22, 6 tells us, you train up a child in the way they should go when they're old, they won't depart from it. What does that mean? It means you teach them what matters the most when they're young, and that can stay with them. What is she doing for her son? She's instilling an eternal perspective that it's more important that you are connected to Christ and die early than you live a long life rejecting faith and going your own way, right? Like this is the perspective she's instilling. So this is how he grows up. So when he is 10 years old, he received an official congressional appointment to be the secretary to America's diplomat over to Paris, which the diplomat to Paris was his father. So basically he got permission to go with his dad to Paris. And some people might look at that and think it's nepotism, right? Just a family favor, I can point out he was a really impressive 10-year-old, but to make it even more clear, if you go to when he was 14, he received a second congressional appointment before the throne of Catherine the Great in Russia, and this time, he wasn't somebody's secretary. He was part of the diplomatic team. Well, what job are you giving a 14-year-old? He was the official interpreter because he was already fluent in six languages. It's not bad for a 14-year-old, right? It's a good start. Well, his life got even more impressive. Because when he's in his early 20s, George Washington became president, and George Washington chose John Quincy Adams to be America's top diplomat. Uh, John Adams became president. He again chose his son as America's top diplomat. He then became a senator under Thomas Jefferson. Then under James Madison, he became again America's top diplomat and negotiated the end of the War of 1812. He then became the Secretary of State under James Monroe. He then became the sixth president of the United States of America. This guy has arguably the most impressive resume of any American ever, right? Well, what's more interesting to me is after he was president, he did what no other president has ever done. He ran for Congress. 
Now, if you've been president and then you go to Congress, like we would say that, that seems like a demotion, right? If President Trump, President Obama was in Congress, they're one of 435 members of Congress. Why did he go to Congress? He says there was a great evil that was yet to be remedied. He became the leader of the anti-slavery movement in Congress. In fact, they gave him the nickname, the Hellhound of Abolition, because that was the issue he locked his teeth in and wouldn't let go of. As he was there, which he was there for 17 years, as he was there for 17 years, he fought year after year after year after slavery. And at that point, the, the Democrats who were very pro-slavery had control of the house and they were not going away from slavery. One day a reporter came to him and said, Mr. Adams, you've been fighting against slavery for all these years and there have been no visible signs of success. How do you stay motivated when you haven't been successful? His response was based on his life motto. He said his life motto was duty is ours, results are God's. What he told the reporter it's only up to me to do the right thing. It's up to God what happens after that, okay? Well, he continues this fight. And if you're familiar with Congress, every two years, there are freshman congressmen that are elected. And so his last term, there was a freshman congressman that was elected. And this freshman congressman joined the anti-slavery movement. He is a part of some of these major speeches and floor fights and all that's going on. John Quincy Adams is the leader. So he hears all these speeches from John Quincy Adams. Well, John Quincy Adams one day ends up having a stroke in the Capitol. He dies in the Capitol building. And when he died, the anti-slavery movement is very strong at this point, but he was the face of the political movement. And so he's now gone. This young freshman decides, I'm gonna run for re-election. I, I wanna help carry the mantle. So he ran for re-election and he got defeated. He decides he's gonna try to run for Congress again. He got defeated a second time. He ran for US Senate and got defeated. He ran for State House and got defeated. He did not win another election until Abraham Lincoln became the president of the United States. And when Lincoln became the president, what's quite remarkable, he, he's the guy credited with ending slavery. Well, he's the one that did the Emancipation Proclamation. He's the one that is credited with the 13th Amendment that actually ended slavery in America. And what I would point out was that all he really did was fulfill the vision of John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams fought his entire life for something he never saw realized. And yet, probably with, Without any knowledge, he was able to train the very guy that fulfilled the calling God had placed on his life. And what I want to encourage us with, first of all, I love looking at American history because there's so many fun stories like this, but what we recognize is there are times that God calls us to something and God doesn't always call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. And oftentimes in our faithfulness, we don't even see the victory that we are striving for, but who knows that God might use us to mentor the very people that will fulfill that thing. And so what I would tell you is if you are in this room and you are an older generation, do not be discouraged with the state of the world. You need to find someone of the next generation that you can pour into and mentor. If you are of a younger generation, you need to look for people that can mentor and speak wisdom into your life because they've learned lessons, they've been places, they've done things that they can offer you wise and hopefully godly counsel on as we do this. But, but where I wanna finish, I wanna challenge us as Christians on this. Because we live in a culture that ultimately their position of America is America's bad and the founding fathers were evil. We hear this generalization. And I want to just stop you and remind you, as a Christian, if you hear any kind of accusation, if you have a thought, you always should think, what does the Bible say? So if we go to the Bible, who is one of our leaders and heroes from the Bible? Well, King David's an easy example. King David is one of our heroes from the Bible. Well, King David, if you remember, was an amazing warrior. He killed lions, he killed bears, right? This guy was amazing and he did it at a young age because before he ever kills Goliath, when Saul's like, I think you're too young. David says, Saul, this giant's no problem. Whenever a lion or bear stole a lamb, I would chase them down and kill them. 
And Saul's like, okay, we'll give you a shot, right? Remember, scholars think David was between 14 and 17 years old when he killed Goliath, which means he would have been killing lions and bears at what, 11, 12, okay? I've been an outdoorsman and a hunter my entire life. If someone showed up and they're like, Tim, let's go to Alaska, grizzly bear hunt. I'm in, sounds awesome. But I'm taking some real big guns, right? <laughs> this was a kid with a rock and a stick. What do we know about David? He was real good at killing stuff, okay? Well, we also know that he was an amazing worshiper. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote the majority of the book of Psalms, right? This is an amazing part of David's life. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It tells us about David's kids. Amnon was the one who had a crush on a sister and raped his sister. And you know what David did? Nothing. Absalom gets angry because that his dad did nothing. Absalom's like, I'll solve this problem. Absalom kills Amnon. What does David do? Nothing. Absalom leads a revolt. He's gonna overthrow and take the throne from his father. What does David do? He ran away, right? Finally, David's men go to war. They kill Absalom. David's back in power, but then he whines that his son died. And well, then Adonijah wants the throne from his father. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Adonijah, comma, the son whom David never corrected. The Bible says a father disciplines the son he loves. King David, at minimum, was an unloving father, but really he was an absent father. King David is one of the worst fathers, examples of, we have in Scripture. He was a terrible father to go further. At a time when kings went to war, King David stayed back and there's a woman of unusual beauty bathing, right? Bathsheba, he has the affair. He murders the husband, Uriah. David has some major problems, okay? But here's a couple things I would point out. Number one, the Bible unapologetically tells the whole story. It tells the good, the bad, and the ugly. But here's what it gets a little crazy to me is we live in this modern cancel culture and cancel culture says, whoa, wait a second. We, we can't celebrate people that have done bad things. I will challenge you further. Moments ago, you were singing songs that the words were taken from Psalms that this murdering, adulterer, terrible, unloving father wrote. How in the world can we sing the songs from this guy? Well, first of all, it's because we do not see things the way the world does, right? We recognize, what does the Bible tell us? Our starting place for our worldview is that all of sin comes short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means everybody is jacked up and needs Jesus, right? But because of that, somebody's imperfection will never disqualify them from being used by God. Because God only has one type of people he can use, and that's the broken, messed up people that need him, right? This is the reality as we study scripture. See, the, the reason we can celebrate King David on any level is because we never celebrate his sin. We acknowledge it was sin. See, if, if we look back historically, when there's people saying we should cancel American history and they're trying to change the narrative, if you look at some of the greatest leaders in our nation's history, you know, for every one of them, I can point out some major flaws in their life. I can point out sins in their life. And yet, it did not disqualify them from being used by God. And what we recognize, these people were never celebrated because we thought they were perfect. Instead, we celebrate how a perfect God used imperfect people and did great things through them. See, we, we shift the attention to who God is and what God does, not on how good somebody else is. It's recognizing what God did through that person. And I know, last week, 
Pastor Landon asked you to read Hebrews 11. Okay, hopefully you took a little time to read some Hebrews 11, but this is known as our Faith Hall of Fame. We were told to look at the heroes of the faith who have gone before us as examples to us for our own faith. Have you ever thought about who those heroes are? Because if you start going to, like Hebrews 11 goes chronologically through this. When you get to Noah, Noah, amazing faith. He builds a boat, it's never rained. He doesn't build a boat on water, builds it on land and it's too big to move. Like, this is crazy. That's amazing faith. Yes, once the ark lands on Mount Ararat, Noah gets off, becomes a farmer, plants a vineyard. You know what happens next? He didn't just get drunk. He gets drunk and passes out naked. His sons come and cover him up. Now, I don't know what your church life experience is. I'm just gonna tell you. You get drunk and pass out naked, you're probably not in leadership for a while, right? Like probably let's, let's, let's work on a little stuff, like restoration. Let's work. Well, you take Abraham. Abraham, amazing faith. God tells him, pack up a move, and he does. Amazing faith, yes. Abraham had amazing faith. He also is one of the biggest cowards and liars in the Bible. Because every time he showed up somewhere with his wife, who apparently was really pretty, right? And the king's like, who's the pretty lady? He's like, oh, you mean my sister? You can have her. I know in 2023, we have some gender role issues. I'm gonna tell you, this might be a new dating question for you, right? Ladies, you're like, hey, so bad guy shows up, uh, what's gonna happen, right? Because I'm just telling you, for the guy to be like, take the lady to save me, you have confused your role, right? Moses was a murderer, Rahab was a prostitute, Samson was a womanizer, David was a murdering adulterer, terrible father. This is the most jacked up list ever. And these are our heroes. Why does God reveal a list of such jacked up people for us? I think one of the reasons is he wants us to have hope. That if God could use them, we're not disqualified either. What that also means is we have to be smart enough as we look back historically, not to disqualify people that weren't perfect, but instead recognize that there's a perfect God who moves in imperfect people and does some remarkable things through them. And, and, and as I say that, we, we've gone through a lot of stuff this morning. Uh, whoop, let me back up. Uh, we have a website, wallbuilders.com. If you wanna know more information about some of these people, some of these heroes, I'd highly encourage you, check out our website. We have a, a book called The American Story. It's got more than a thousand footnotes. We start with Columbus, go roughly to the ending of slavery in America. And we just try to tell more of an honest story. And, and what we highlight, it's, it's not that America's not the story of a perfect nation or perfect people. It's a story of how a perfect God used imperfect people and did amazing things through them. And where I wanna challenge and close with us today, we are looking at a culture that is more lost than we've ever seen. But the reason they're lost is because Christians in the church have not been speaking up the way they should for decades, right? Instead of being discouraged or disappointed or overwhelmed by how bad things are, recognize there has never been a better opportunity to be a Christian than right now in America. Because people have never been more hungry for truth. And bottom line, everybody knows they're being lied to. Nobody knows who to trust and believe anymore. This is your opportunity to share truth like never before with people that are hungry like never before, looking for answers. Ultimately, what that means, it's time for us to be salt and light. We are the answer to the world in need. Thank you guys for letting me share. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Mercy Culture Church. If this podcast has blessed you, we'd like to encourage you to share it with a friend. To learn more about us, find us on social media and online at mercyculture.com. 